Peak Performance knows that according to studies, nearly 30 million men suffer from ED and won't do anything about it. Maybe they're afraid the solution will be painful. Maybe they don't react well to medication. Maybe they're afraid it won't work. Don't be part of that 30 million. Call 1-800-210-8181. That's 1-800-210-8181. Or visit peakperformanceformen.com. Peak Performance. Man at his peak. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens, and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Roswell in the 21st century is a detailed re-examination of the Roswell UFO crash case. I have studied the evidence for more than 30 years, and I now put that evidence under a microscope in a cold case examination of the facts. These facts might not please everyone. They are based on my comprehensive investigation that took years to complete, but they do lead to the conclusion that whatever fell was not built on Earth. The best of Project Blue Book is based on the 22-year-long investigation conducted by the Air Force. But the book goes far beyond that, bringing in evidence that was uncovered long after Project Blue Book was terminated. Using facts that were unavailable to the Air Force investigators, I was able to prove that the Air Force manipulated the data and drew unrealistic conclusions about the UFO sightings reported to them. My different perspective shows there was more to Project Blue Book than even the Air Force knew. Both books are available at Amazon.com. Join Patty Conklin and Healing Within Radio each week. More than entertainment, Healing Within offers educational, useful tools for everyday life. Listen for help overcoming fear, anxiety, and depression. Patty knows about eliminating cancer, MS, dementia, Parkinson's, and a host of illnesses that we face every day. Life can be good. Life is good. All you need are simple tools to start changing your life. Start right now by visiting pattyconklin.com, P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N. No matter where you are in the world, you can work with Patty through Skype, phone, or in person, visiting one of her retreats in Georgia. Visit pattyconklin.com today or call our offices at 404-474-0086. That's pattyconklin.com or call 404 404- Four seven four zero zero eight six. This is a different perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. Before I bring on Don Schmidt to talk about um, some of the research that Len Stringfield did, uh, by request, by the way, uh, I just wanted to say one thing. I I post at my blog uh, a short synopsis of the program with links to it, and I suggest if you have questions, please submit them, and I will try to get them into the program. What has bothered me about some of this is one of the guys just went on a rant about Len Stringfield. 
an anonymous rant, I might say, that Len is a liar and a fool and didn't know what he was doing. And Don and I will talk about this a little bit later. But what just bugs me about this is how people can hide behind the their anonymous names on the internet and just spew this hatred without any sort of retribution. They don't have to know anything. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is just type some comments and let them go. It, it, it demonstrates a lack of civility, I think, in, in where we are. I don't think this would have happened 15, 20 years ago, but with the internet allowing us to just spew this hatred, we engage in that repeatedly. And I just think it is, is horrible. I mean, I've been subject to it myself. Uh, uh, Stan Friedman, couldn't think of his name for some reason. Stan Friedman once did an article for the MUFON Journal about 38 false claims of Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall. I eventually inherited them all, but it was merely an attack on our research and, and us personally, that we were government agents, that we had misdone, misclaimed this, misclaimed that, made all these stupid mistakes. And it presented no evidence showing where we had made those mistakes. It was just an attack on our character. And it seems that this sort of thing has become more and more prevalent in this day and age. You just can't say anything without somebody taking offense. And it's become ridiculous. And it, I noticed this a long time ago in the UFO community where some of this was going on, but it seems to spread to society in general. I wish there was something we could do to reclaim the civility that we've lost. I've had people write reviews of my books and it's clear they never wrote the books. They were reacting to my name and said horrible things about it, um, about the books and these sort of things. I was nothing but a debunker, but it's uh, simply untrue and, and unconscionable that we allow this to go on. I think we need to take a step back towards civility and away from this toxic attitude that we seem to have developed in the last few years. Having said all that and wasted innumerable minutes here, um, I'm going to be joined by Don Schmidt, who resides in his native Wisconsin, or as we say here in Iowa, Wisconsin, on a 45-acre ranch located just outside Milwaukee and Hubertus. He has a bachelor's degree from Concordia University and he has graduate courses in criminal justice at St. John's University. He has worked for the U.S. Postal Service for the past 23 years, and probably more than that now, and also worked, at, worked as a freelance medical and commercial illustrator. He is the former director of special investigations and co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. He teamed with me in 1988 to begin our investigation of the Roswell UFO crash, which resulted in two books that we did together about that, and which was used for uh, the Showtime original movie Roswell. He later teamed with Tom Carey, and the two of them have collaborated on a number of UFO books with Roswell as the main theme. He, like me, has appeared on dozens of television shows and hundreds of radio programs. He and his wife, Marie, uh, live together in Wisconsin. Don, welcome again to A Different Perspective. Well, good to be back, Kevin, and I'm glad I'm still with my wife, Marie. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> And I have to... Uh... 100% concur as far as your uh, opening editorial uh, comments because uh, we're witnessing a, a good deal of this more and more, especially uh, that the First Amendment is being uh, slowly uh, deprived of people for no other desire than just to speak an opinion. And um, it does not bode well for the future, especially for young people, I'm afraid. Here's something that bothers me, and nobody's brought it out. In um, 1984, meaning the book, not the year, um, there was a lot of talk about hate crimes. And now we seem to embrace this idea. Nobody has talked about how this came out of, it didn't come out of, but how this is sort of uh, was, was um, predicted by 1984. I, I don't understand why we have embraced hate speech and saying, well, you can't say that because it's hate speech. Any speech you want to make, you can make. That's the First Amendment. And, and labeling it as something else to, to suppress it is completely and totally wrong. But we are off on a tangent already. So um, let me set this up. As I said I, at the beginning of the program, um, at my blog, www. 
kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I put a, a note at the end of each of the uh, synopsis of the programs. If you've got comments from the upcoming program, please submit them. And we got a number of questions that way. But one of them was a, um, uh, a diatribe against uh, Len Stringfield, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which I find, I find very hard to believe that anybody would do that. My understanding of what Len was doing as he created the, and, and maybe, maybe we should get in the history in a moment, but created his crash retrieval status reports was this was information he received, not necessarily that he investigated, not necessarily information he believed, but information he had received, and he was putting it out there for other researchers to look at in the hopes that they maybe would investigate as well or, or investigate it and find something about it and report that back to him. Was that was that your opinion of what the status reports were about? Totally, totally. Um, and as we both observed and as well as we both knew, Lynn, we, uh, we observed that above everything else, he was a gentleman. He uh, was a man of his word. And it was one of the reasons that I feel, and I think you would agree, that so many sought him out to uh, take uh, him into their confidence. And, uh, and I'm sure, no, no doubt, many of them led him on wild goose chases. God knows we've had our share. But uh, that's what uh, investigation requires. And, and Len was not an investigator. He was more of a, a story collector in the sense that because he was the recipient of all these uh, case, uh, you know, the testimonies, that in, in putting out these status reports, I don't know so much as, as it was sharing, as much as he was hoping others would then come forward and, and corroborate some of this information. Oh, yeah, I heard from this, uh, uh, you know, another individual about this case or that case, and they told me the exact same thing. So I think he was looking for a, a, a more verification at times than well, me, he was hoping let, that others would, would follow up. Let me, let me get a little bit of history here. Back in um, 19, 1950, there's a book called Behind the Flying Saucers. This was mm-hmm. a tale of the UFO crash near Aztec, New Mexico in 1948. And it, the book was a bestseller, and what happened was a reporter, J.P. Kane from the San Francisco Chronicle, I think True Magazine. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. Examined the story to see what he could learn about it, and he pretty well debunked it. Destroyed it completely. From that point on in ufology, almost all reports of UFO crashes were rejected out of hand. Nobody wanted to look at them. Nobody wanted to... And if, I may, if I may quickly interject, and, and for that matter, even occupant cases, as we know, uh, Donald Kehoe, as far as with NICAP, that uh, they turned a blind eye to any uh, occupant reports they received through the 50s as a result. And, and in fact, as you know, Kehoe believed that these were unmanned interplanetary objects for that reason. So uh, there was, there was an, an immediate taboo as far as on anyone who suggests that there were aliens inside these craft, let alone aliens inside crashed objects of this sort. And, and the, the, the important point, though, is uh, APRO, Coral Lorenzen, Jim Lorenzen, were, were accepting the reports of occupants, and that information was getting yes, out. Were. When you, came, when you mm-hmm. came to crash retrievals, there was a, a, a complete rejection of those stories out of hand. Uh, okay. I remember when I first saw the um, the Roswell incident book, my first reaction was this was the Aztec story uh, repackaged, and I didn't want anything to do with it. But Same what, here. Neither the, one of us had read the book when we started working together. But the, uh, you know, but the Eight years after the fact, we had never even read the book. The important point here is, Len was collecting these stories, and in 1978, mm-hmm. at the MUFON Symposium, Len did his first report, his first uh, his speech on crash retrievals, and that kind of brought us all back into the fold. When we come back in just a moment, we'll get a little bit more in-depth to that, what exactly Len learned that um, 
got us to the point where he was talking about crash retrievals and did a paper for the Musan Symposium and then led to the status reports. I'm here with Don Schmidt, whose book that's coming out in June. What's, what's the name of the book that's coming out in June? Uh, Roswell, The Ultimate Cold Case. Okay. And uh, my uh, blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. My book is Roswell in the 21st Century, which is a dispassionate look at the case. And the latest book is called The Best of Project Blue Book, which uh, you can find on Amazon. Take a look at that when you get a chance. We will be back right after this with Don Schmidt. So, hey, stick around. Are you looking for psychic services that empower as well as provide accurate information? Jenny is a third-generation psychic with extensive esoteric training. A practicing professional intuitive for over 30 years, her accuracy is astounding. While most psychics can read what will happen to you if you don't change directions, Jenny understands the future is subjective. While there is a river of time we all traverse, that river has many waves, eddies, currents, and tributaries from which to choose. With Jen E. as your guide, you can explore the many possible outcomes in the river of time and navigate your course to the one of your liking. Take control of your future. Book your life-changing session with Jenny today at www.gen-e.net. That's www.gen-e.net. Mission Evolution is dedicated to the well-being of the planet and animals, as well as the evolution of humankind. One major factor threatening all three is increasing toxicity. Heavy metals and other environmental toxins are poisoning our bodies, deteriorating our brains, blocking our spiritual connection, and shortening our lives. Yet these poisons are extremely difficult to remove. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, and I recently became aware of a product created from the marriage of nature and nanotechnology called Vitality. Is formulated from zoolite, whose crystalline structure binds toxins, gently carrying them out of the body. The light is only as clear as the window through which it shines. Clear your body, shine your light into the world. Visit VitalityHappens.com for a 20% discount. Enter code PATHHOME. In the mid-1990s, I was approached by a young woman who believed she'd been abducted by alien creatures. In conversations, I began a journey that took me not into the world of interstellar travel, but back through time into past lives. Under hypnotic regression administered by a professional rather than describing abduction, Jenny, as she is called, begins to tell a tale of horror in 19th century London. Her unbelievable past life seems to connect with Jack the Ripper and other monsters of the past. Throughout the session, Jenny provides a rich detail of her past lives that links some of the most horrific killers in history to one another. Using the resources of a university library in the pre-internet day, I was able to verify some of Jenny's claims. She has knowledge that wasn't readily available to a suburban housewife. Does this prove the reality of her tales? Conversations attempts to answer that and other provocative questions. Conversations is available at Amazon.com. Don Schmidt. We're going to be talking about Len Stringfield and crash retrievals. And we were doing a little bit of history of how we got to this point. And I wanted to bring up one other thing quickly. In the mid-1970s, I think it was, there was kind of a resurgent of the Aztec case. Uh, Robert mm -hmm. Carr, who was a professor in Florida, had done something and actually talked to Len Stringfield about it. And Carr said that he'd come up with five witnesses who remembered the Aztec case and, and gave the names to, to Len, and Len said he knew them as well. But um, others in the field, Carl Lorenzen specifically, and, and a couple of other people, a fellow named Mike McClellan, as a matter of fact, uh, did some research into Aztec, and they again kind of left us with the idea that the, there was nothing to that story. It was a, a, a complete and total hoax. So we get to Len Stringfield in 1978, 
And this is about the time that uh, Jesse Marcel came forward and talked to Stan Friedman and Len Stringfield. And Len was putting together his, his speech on crash retrievals, and it had a lot of different cases that information he had received. In the printed version in the um, symposium proceedings, there's no mention of, of um, Jesse Marcel, but in his speech in, in front of the audience, he did mention the Marcel case. He'd gotten that information too late to get into his speech. But this kind of reversed the whole idea of crash retrievals, that people started taking a look at it. Uh, Don, was there something in what he had said other than with Jesse Marcel that, that intrigued you about the crash retrievals? I, I personally believe it was more of the um, the intrigue and uh, the cloak and dagger that was taking place before and then thereafter. And even the, the way Heineck, who was already, you know, very curious as to what Len was going to present at that Dayton conference, and he was to have you know, he was to have arrived later. I, he was delayed in St. Louis, as I recalled, and then Len was quite surprised when there was Heineck, you know, sitting in the fifth row, that he made sure he was going to be there in attendance to but hear, you, said, you know, you Len's said, disclosures. You said cloak and dagger. Was there something else going on uh, for this conference that involved Len? Well. well well, Len had uh, some threats. There were he talked about that there were you know suits all over the hotel, including the uh, the lobby, the restroom. Uh, you recall right after he completed his talk, he had security rush up onto the stage and you know quickly usher him off. That uh, supposedly the hotel had you know, received a number of uh, threats you know directed at him. Or what he was talking about, uh, they switched his hotel room, and um, he claimed to have met with someone who, who said he was with the CIA, and they were very concerned that if Len would discuss at all any type of reverse engineering, that the Russians would be especially you know interested, and that he had to tone that aspect down. Well, Len didn't have any of that information. As part of his talk, he really never did. I think Len, as you recall, was more interested in some of the autopsy doctors that he uh, would later talk with. But I don't recall that he ever talked about any um, uh, efforts in the reverse engineering. But, but this was the time that Heineck then especially latched on to, to, to Stringfield, that Heineck felt that uh, if, if anyone was receiving inside information, it was Len Stringfield. And he made every effort thereafter, for as, as long as Heineck was alive, to strike some type of a deal to share the information. Heineck wanted the names. He wanted to be able to talk to these people directly. And as we well, both let me, let remember, me interrupt, Len... Let me, let me interrupt here, because I do have a question I think is pertinent to this point. You've been to a lot of MUFON conferences... I have been to a lot yes. of MUFON conference. Have you yes. ever observed anything like this at any of the conferences where where the uh, one of the speakers was harassed in that fashion? Well, the, the other situation would be when Bill Moore essentially did his swan song at the MUFON conference in Las Vegas. But that was that was a whole different that was a whole different kettle of fish. It wasn't a lot of outside agitation going on about what Bill Moore was going to say. It was from inside the conference where the people were just really it was from inside the conference and people such as Bill English and William Cooper and others who were there in attendance that uh, were making subtle threats and uh, the tension in the room was such that uh, that even when Moore finished, he slipped out the back door. But that was and, that was all that was pre-planned by Moore. That was that was Moore staging the whole situation, I think. And I don't yeah, think Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was not Len. Yeah, yeah, that was Moore who brought this and, upon himself. Whereas Len had no idea that he was getting into an area that was so controversial, so sensitive, that would it would even enlist outside uh involvement. Yes, yes. And how would how would the, do you have any clues to how these outside people would have learned what what Len was going to speak about? I mean, I don't think he made it a big secret to um, 
the, the, the MUFON people, I mean, they knew what his speech was. It had been sent in months earlier and that sort of thing. And that would suggest that, you know, it, it was somewhat reminiscent of what we would hear during the whole contact, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the big conferences that they would have. And we had someone and, uh, who used to serve kind of like a roadie with the Adamski and Dan Fry and Howard Menger whenever they would do conferences from city to city. And he would describe how in the front row, typically there would be Air Force brass who would just sit there and applaud and encourage, you know, these wild tales of, you know, flying saucer trips to Mars and Venus and visitors from other planets, that type of thing, and encouraging that whole uh, nonsense, that element. And so to me, I, I felt that it was, you know, some of these mavericks, if anybody, whether inside the UFO community or loosely attached to uh, possible some intelligence uh, a agencies that uh, were just having fun with it, or there was a deep concern that Len was getting into an area that if there was any chance of a whistleblower coming forward, crash retrieval cases were potentially that. And given he had already talked to Jess Marcel Sr., I think they saw the possibility of the floodgates possibly opening. And they Which, needed of course, to they did. In short order. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, well, the interesting thing is I, I do not remember reading much about UFO crash retrievals or uh, getting any information from the Lorenzen, for example, about crash retrievals. And I was associated with them quite a bit in the um, 70s and 80s before they passed away. And they right, just right. really didn't get into that sort of thing. There wasn't a lot of discussion about that. How is it that uh, Len tripped on this information? What triggered the, his research? Do you have a, have a clue on that? Well, I, I believe that even leading up to that uh, 78 conference, because he was with NICAP, and there were people within NICAP, aside from Kehoe, such as Dick Hall and Dr. Peter Rank, and Dick Hall, who was specifically working on the Fort Dix-McGuire incident that happened, uh, I believe, also in 78. And What, what, no, what was the was, Fort Dix what, what was Fort Dix incident? Just so we where, all uh, the, the, the claim that an alien had actually been killed, had been shot at uh, the base uh, at Fort Dix McGuire in New Jersey. And uh, the, the body was retrieved and then taken where else to uh, Wright Patterson in Dayton, Ohio, that type of thing. And Dick Hall was, was personally involved in that investigation. And I think that's what. Uh, truly got Len involved as far as with such particular cases. And I know he had been compiling, he had been collecting similar cases up till his Dayton presentation. But uh, I think it was just a slow accumulation of material that then uh, he decided he was going to go public and, uh, and see if others would follow suit. So the, the suggestion, obviously, is not necessarily an endorsement of the material that he was talking about, but an opportunity for others to hear what he had heard over the years and see if they had any way to either corroborate part of it or maybe had an explanation for it. He was looking precisely, for additional information. Precisely. Exactly. And as you recall, for the times we would meet with Len, he would always qualify whatever he disclosed to us, whatever case information, you know, minus uh, the source uh, of the material that he was merely reporting. He was merely just discussing, presenting to us what others had provided him, whether over a phone conversation or written letters, that uh, he was just the reporter. He wasn't the investigator. And, uh, you know, and Len was an older man even at that time. Well, you know, I, I, I checked just before we went on the air. Len would be 100 years old this year. I so, did not realize he was that old. Yes, 1920 he was born. I was going to say, so, I, I guess he was uh, in the 70s when we met him, met with him in, uh, in Cincinnati a number of times. 
And uh, it's not as though he had investigators working with him, that he had colleagues that were, uh, you know, taking uh, the material and following up on anything. Well, Um, let me me break in here. Let me break in here because we're going to have to take a break. And I hate to do that because we got the got the conversation going. But let me also say there are some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at XZBN. So take a look at the listings at the X-Zone website. And I'm sure you're going to find something that will spark your interest. And as I say, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com because I have links from last week's program. And I'll, I'll mention this when we come back from the break that may be of interest. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. How would your life change if you could develop the business and personal skills that you need in order to make more money? Do you want to learn how to achieve your big life goals faster? Then go to findhiddenmoney.com and get the Goal For It online course. The course teaches you how you can set and achieve your biggest goals while completely overcoming the roadblocks to your goals so that you can realize your dreams and imagine more success. Go to findhiddenmoney.com. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide audience if you have seen a ufo had a close encounter seen a ghost bigfoot lake monster or a story that you would like to share or have investigated contact me rob mcconnell by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll free 1-800-610-7035 extension 143 and on skype xzone radio tv for more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, always remember Exxon Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Memorable dynamic presentations are a not-so-secret weapon in the business world. Do you have a powerful message that must be shared, but you haven't found a way to deliver that message? Do you want to be known as a top public speaker who gets amazing results? Are you ready to create and deliver your powerful message? Thomas Hyde can help you create and deliver your speech to get the results you desire. Visit IconQuality.com. As promised, I am here with Don Schmidt. Uh, before we went away, I started to make a comment but I think about, the, about my blog. Last week, Robert Schaefer and I discussed briefly Level Land, and he made a comment or a claim that four of the witnesses to Level Land had been somewhat discredited. It may not have been one guy or uh, four guys. It may have been one guy pranking the police or something like that. I did some in-depth research into this uh, over the last week and uh, discovered a great deal of information about those four guys. 
uh, there's a link to the blog posting or the website where the skeptic made the claims about those four guys. And there is um, a link back to the program so you can listen to it. But there's a great deal of information about um, some of the witnesses involved in the level and uh, UFO incident. So uh, go to www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and you'll be able to read about that. There's links to um, additional information. So when we went away... We were talking about Len gathering of information and 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 his hopes of others taking up the mantle. But didn't didn't Len actually investigate some of the cases himself or, or follow up on them? I th I believe my impression was that he only followed up if additional names were provided. When he would receive a contact, especially over the phone one of the first things he would ask, and you and I did the same thing, who else can corroborate this? Who else could I talk to that might be able to provide more, you know, more material, more information regarding your, uh, your account, that type of thing? And it was very rare that somebody would provide such follow-up information. It was one of the reasons that I believe that Len had as many cases as he did was because it appeared as though there was very little overlapping very few times that he had multiple witnesses to the same uh, particular incident, that type of thing. Uh, another person that we, we failed we need to throw into the mix pre-1978, we need to also throw in uh, Todd Zeckel, who uh, already had contacted like Kufos, had talked to Heineck about Robert Willingham and the whole Del Rio situation. So that was all, you know, you know, brewing at the time, even leading up to Dayton. Well, let's and let's so it was let let's explore Robert Willingham for just a moment here, because yep. I, know, I remember in, in I think one of his first status reports, he tells the, the Willingham story, which is a, a, a allegedly an Air Force retired Air Force colonel who was a fighter pilot, and while he was on patrol, Lieutenant colonel, yeah, mm -hmm. on patrol. No, he said he was a full colonel. Um, and he was called by NORAD or the dew line that there was some kind of a craft going down and he was able to uh, land at Dias Air Force Base, get into a private airplane. And I, I should point out in uh, some of the Air Force bases, uh, there's always, always, there's usually a uh, aero club where they, they, they can rent airplanes, civilian airplanes and go flying and that sort of thing. So he took the mm -hmm. civilian airplane down to Dorio, saw the crash saucer, picked up a piece of debris and all of this sort of thing. In a lens, one of Lenz Strata's reports, it, he gives the date as 1948, and there's some additional information right. about it. Mm -hmm. Later on, he comes out and mentions that it's now December of 1950 is the date of the, right. of the, right. the crash. Uh, Willingham did an affidavit for Todd Zeckel that That's laid well, the... Well, yeah, yeah. And and uh, but there's no date on the on the affidavit. But anyway, uh, then later on, still later, the date switched to the mid 1950s. Now I investigated the the Willingham case as well. I think that Len pretty well discredited the case before uh, he passed away. But it's clear yeah, that yeah. it's clear that Willingham was making the whole thing up. He wasn't mm -hmm. an Air Force colonel. He was a Civil Air Patrol lieutenant colonel. Uh, the airplane he claimed he was flying was an F-94, which in 1948 was not operational. He claims that he had uh, been in Korea, and he and a friend who were not on flying status but knew how to fly had uh, somehow stolen a couple of P-51s and went up on their own missions against the um, North Koreans. Um, sure they and, did, yeah. yeah. yeah and, <laughs> well, as, as, a, as a former military pilot, having engaged in combat operations, I know that it was... That never happened because he wouldn't have known Impossible. the code. Today. He wouldn't have known who, uh, to contact the um, the arty, the artillery people who would be firing there to, so they didn't fly through the gun target lines and all of that sort of thing. But it's pretty clear that Willingham made up the story. And I think Len pretty well exposed that in his later um, status reports. That's correct, yes. But, I, 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 but, the, but the point here is, I think the important point here is that he he gathered the information. He put it out there. I gathered some of it from him and took it to the next level. So his what his mission was to provide us with those cues or those leads and and hope we would follow it up and get to the bottom of it. I think that 
proves that it worked out very well. And that was certainly the case with Roswell. That was certainly the case with his witness, Tim, that he even allowed, he provided us an opportunity to speak with him directly. And uh, Len, as much as we came up with the actual name, we cannot deny the fact that Len gave us every hint in the book, knowing that we were not going to give up on it until he did provide us the actual name. The one, the one thing is we got to Sappho Henderson, who is a wife of Pappy Henderson, who flew materials from Roswell to Wright Field. And I, and I am absolutely convinced he did this on purpose. He wasn't going to give us the name, but he was a little bit uh, careless with flashing one of the letters she'd written down. And I was able to read the address, the street address yes. and get the name. Yes. So I was, <laughs> so I, I excused myself to go to the bathroom so I could make a note on it immediately. And that was how we got to Sappho Henderson. We got to Sappho Henderson, but but I am convinced he he wanted us to have the information. He knew we'd treat her with with um, civility and and be cordial, of but he didn't want to violate. And way, he didn't want to violate the trust. Yeah, Precisely. And, and, and this way and he, he could honestly say he didn't give us the name. We found it. Absolutely, absolutely. And so it's, it was his way of at least assisting us. And as we both recall, he provided us with as much handwritten information, uh, that whole uh, flight as far as uh, the, the uh, uh, straight flush, as far as that July 9th, 1947 flight out of Roswell. He provided us with all the names that were provided him by Lloyd Thompson, uh, Tim, as Len referred to him. So he did everything he could to assist us. In, yeah, I think, again, I think we need to, verifying his source. Well, I was going to say, I think we need to point out here that, that Len, if he trusted you as an investigator or knew that you were serious in the research, he would help you out. But in the status reports, because it was published and would go to a lot of different people, he sometimes obscured the names of the people as a way of protecting them from... Uh, lots of people calling them up in the middle of the night to, to get information. So we have to respect him for that as well. Of course. But he also, I, I, I personally believe he loved being part of the chase, and especially in that latter stage of his life, that he realized that if he ever broke that confidence, that it would turn off the spigot that he, he enjoyed being the magnet. He enjoyed being able to even tell Heineck that I have to respect these people's privacy. I have guaranteed it, and I am not going to relinquish on that promise. Do we have a rough estimate of how many crash retrieval cases he was exposed to in his, in his career? Easily uh, upwards of 50 that uh, when you go through all the status reports and uh, and certainly most of them are totally a- anecdotal uh, fairy tales as far as even by their very nature in, in in most cases they don't even provide a time or a location as much as uh, you know I was taken out in a bus with the windows all covered and the next thing I know there's a crash saucer up against a dune in the desert, you know, you know, ground, that type of thing. Um, so as you recall, Kevin, both of us, we had a hard time trying to link specific uh, uh, descriptions with other cases. The ones that, that always stood out to us immediately were Roswell. Obviously, those were the first ones we focused on. But after that, Anything that uh, appeared to be connected to Wright-Patterson, Wright-Field, Wright-Pat. And there were literally dozens of those cases. And I think for the fact that Len was right there in Cincinnati, not far. He's right in Ohio. And as a result, he was getting a lot of information from former, uh, as far as base personnel, from Wright-Pat. And and he was a big help for us when we were when we were following the Roswell case by providing us with names and some of the information so that we could follow the people out and suggesting avenues to follow. We'll uh, have to come. We'll have to come back here and talk a little bit more about Len Springfield. And we'll find out if he had a favorite case that we can 
pinpoint or something like that, give an idea of what uh, he was doing at that. Um, my book is Roswell in the 21st Century, uh, Encounter in the Desert, which deals with Alani Zamora Landing. And of course, the new one is the best of Project Blue Book, which is an opportunity to look at some of the cases that Blue Book kind of bungled. And in that book is there is a long section on level land, which Robert Schaefer and I were talking about recently to give you an idea of um, sort of the importance of that case because of its multiple witness nature and, and the like. If you've uh, read some of these books, um, think about writing a review because that helps spread the information, tease people into what's going on and suggest avenues of research to those who are interested in doing that. I sometimes supply information to people and they have questions about certain cases and they do some research and supply me with information as well, which I publish on my blog, which I'll cleverly mention is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. We will be back after this with more on Len Stringfield. watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. In the mid-1990s, I was approached by a young woman who believed she'd been abducted by alien creatures. In conversations, I began a journey that took me not into the world of interstellar travel, but back through time into past lives. Under hypnotic regression administered by a professional rather than describing abduction, Jenny, as she is called, begins to tell a tale of horror in 19th century London. Her unbelievable past life seems to connect with Jack the Ripper and other monsters of the past. Throughout the session, Jenny provides a rich detail of her past lives that links some of the most horrific killers in history to one another. Using the resources of a university library in the pre-internet day, I was able to verify some of Jenny's claims. She has knowledge that wasn't readily available to a suburban housewife. Does this prove the reality of her tales? Conversations attempts to answer that and other provocative questions. Conversations is available at Amazon.com. Mission Evolution is dedicated to the well-being of the planet and animals, as well as the evolution of humankind. One major factor threatening all three is increasing toxicity. Heavy metals and other environmental toxins are poisoning our bodies, deteriorating our brains, blocking our spiritual connection, and shortening our lives. Yet these poisons are extremely difficult to remove. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, and I recently became aware of a product created from the marriage of nature and nanotechnology called Vitality. Is formulated from zoolite whose crystalline structure binds toxins, gently carrying them out of the body. The light is only as clear as the window through which it shines. Clear your body, shine your light into the world. Visit VitalityHappens.com for a 20% discount. Enter code PATHHOME. I am here with Don Schmidt. We're talking about Lynn Stringfield and his crash retrieval research and uh, the, the, uh, everything that he did, had done about that. I'm getting caught up in my own syntax here today for some reason. Uh, before we went away, I kind of posed a question, and uh, I don't have a real good answer for this other than possibly he was fascinated with Roswell because he was 
one of the first people to interview Jesse Marcel. So he got that information. But do you know of another case that he might have been fascinated with that he uh, looked into in depth? Well, I had mentioned uh, the Fort Dix McGuire incident from 78. And it was Dick Hall from NICAP that uh, enlisted his involvement. And I know that Len had even been to New Jersey on a number of occasions with, uh, with Dick. And they were looking for additional witnesses to that alleged account. I know Len, uh, especially through Stan Gordon, had uh, spent uh, a little effort as far as the, the Kecksburg incident. And um, I think through Ray Fowler, then he uh, had some interest in the Kingman, Arizona alleged crash as well. But I think it was always with the caveat, please keep me informed. You know, if you come up with anything, let me know. And if I hear anything from my sources, you'll be the first, that type of thing. And um, I think well, it's the reason that we stand uh, as far as being very skeptical on everything I've mentioned up to this point, because there have not been any uh, additional uh, witnesses to corroborate that uh, original testimony. You mean for f the Fort Dix incident? Uh, and and I, I know Fort Dix. I know George Filer. There's a new book that's that's coming out, or but already isn't out. And and Filer claims to be a witness to that particular incident. Yet Filer was never mentioned by Len in any of his status reports that I'm aware of. And uh, I know Harry. Harry Drew is working on the Kingman case. Uh, Aztec, we have the, the Ramses. And uh, I, I guess I, I would harken back to where were these people when Len was originally talking about these cases? Well, that, you know, uh, it, was, I, you, it wasn't you, until you, after you, Len passed that... Go ahead. Well, you and I had done some work on the Kingman case, and uh, you had prevented me, pre prevented me, provided me with the um, name yeah. of Judy Wolcott, I think it was, who claimed Wolcott, that her yes. her um, husband, who had who had died in Vietnam, according Vietnam, to her, right. had mm -hmm. um, written her a letter before he, his untimely demise about the Kingman case, which was 1953 and involved um, Arthur Stansel was the name of the real name of the guy that uh, gave the information to um, and you mentioned his name for the Kingman case um, uh, Drew uh, uh, no uh, well yeah I, I, I'm, I'm sorry I've confused two cases here I've, I'm, I'm confusing two cases here I think no Stencil was was Kingman that's right Stencil was Kingman yeah. anyway the point simply is um, I had done a book called a history of UFO crashes. And I had done some work on the Kingman case. And we had that letter from Judy Wolcott, which seemed to corroborate with Arthur Stanson, which made it was two witnesses. And um, right. I got a phone call from her daughter, Judy Wolcott's daughter. And she said that her father had not been killed in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He had been a sailor. And his ship's captain actually told them that when they returned to the States, they would not be able to wear the Vietnam campaign medal because they had never set foot in Vietnam. They patrolled in the right. ocean off it, and they were not eligible for it. But he had not died in Vietnam, as the story said. And she said that her right. mother tended to make up stuff. And so we got caught up in that kind of, that sort of thing about the, uh, the Kingman case. Uh, this all happened after Len, Len had passed away. So I didn't communicate the Correct. information to him. But I think the Kingman case, I think the Kingman case pretty much is a hoax. Stanzel actually admitted that when he drank, he tended to make up stories. And before he told the story uh, to um, the, the, the teenage boys who found it, or who, who talked to him about it first, he had uh, been drinking beer all afternoon. So he was uh, apparently embellishing something about that. So I think we can kind of write off the Kingman case, which is going to, of course, mean that I'll never be invited to Kingman to speak at their festival. But I think it's important that, you know, we, we point those things out that a lot of these cases have turned out that way. And I think Len was responsible for us learning some of that stuff. Well, yes, he was. And 
because he was the one who was putting out the status reports. And the others used him as, you know, the conduit, as their vehicle for presenting information. So in many cases, it wasn't even where Len was the sole recipient of the information. He was passing on information from Dick Hall, Ray Fowler, um, Todd Zeckel, even uh, Alan Hynek at times. And um, it was with the hope that uh, there would be corroboration, that others in reading some of the material would say, that sounds familiar, or I was there. And they would seek Len out, that type of uh, you know, scenario. But uh, I think uh, the, the spigot was, again, to use that term, uh, that word was, was running dry. As, as Len got older, and I, my impression is in the last year of his life, he was receiving very little of any new material, any new information that... Uh, in fact, there wasn't it, where he was even planning on doing another status report. He wasn't at the time he, he passed on. If anything, he was making plans as to where his files were going. And um, Well, he was, recall, he was diagnosed with cancer, and so he had an opportunity right. to, to make those sorts of decisions. It wasn't something like a sudden heart attack or or a, a traffic accident. He had an opportunity to make those plans. Absolutely. And as you recall, it was a mutual friend and a dear friend of Len's, uh, uh, Pete uh, Hardinger from Circleville, Ohio, who even uh, was Len's ride. Len didn't like to fly. And as a result, we, we had that meeting at QFOS in Chicago that Pete drove Len over from uh, Cincinnati, where we actually sat down and made plans to receive the files because uh, as a major dis uh, uh, display of trust on his part that you had mentioned earlier, Kevin, that Len was going to turn his files over to us. And, and the rest what, of history. And, and what happened? What happened to and those what files? Happened? Well, we uh, we were to learn that there were two sets of files. There were the pre-Dayton files, and then there were the post-Dayton files. And at the uh, MUFON Symposium in Louisville, Kentucky, they made the grand announcement that MUFON, MUFON had acquired Len Stringfield's crash retrieval files. And I immediately called up his widow, Dell who still lived at the residence, you know, in Cincinnati. And she went, no, Don, that's impossible because uh, no one contacted me about releasing the files. And you know what the family's position presently is, and we're still honoring Len's last request, his last wish. And then we learned that there were two secretaries and that what MUFON had acquired were the first secretary's files who had assisted Len and the pre-Dayton information, the less significant, the, 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 the more mundane, the, the, uh, the, 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 they were far from the best cases that he had been working on. The best cases were the post-Dayton. Those were the ones that you and I and QFOS were looking forward to taking possession of, that we were then going to get the names and be able to follow up on the information. And Len, as you mentioned, had been diagnosed with cancer, and he had been hospitalized. And there was an effort to reach us. And I was out of the country at that time. I was in England. And failing that, Len receives a phone call in his hospital room, which basically was, Len, the files aren't going to do you any good where you're going, so you might as well give them all to me. And Len was irate. That was when Len made the decision, then fine, no one's going to get them. Who made and the phone call? That, that was our good friend, Staten Friedman. Well, let's, uh, let's leave it there for right now. Um, for those of you who are paying attention, we've run out of time on this um, episode of the uh, A Different Perspective. Don and I are going to continue this discussion 
And uh, next week, we will have more information about uh, Len Stringfield, what he had learned, what he uh, did with his investigations in the second part of, of this uh, discussion of Len Stringfield. More information about uh, the files and more information about what he had learned during his research into UFOs. I should point out, as I frequently do, that um, there are good programs about the uh, paranormal on the X Zone Broadcast Network. So go to the X Zone Broad, uh, go to the X Zone website, and uh, scroll down and see what uh, you might find that'll be of interest to you. Don's book is cleverly called uh, what? What's the new book called? I keep forgetting it. <laughs> Roswell. The Ultimate Cold Case. Yes, The Ultimate Cold Case. I'm sorry about that. I don't know. Uh, the website is roswellinvestigator.com. Mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Next week, as I say, I will be here again with Don Schmidt. We'll finish up our conversation on Len Stringfield because we thought it was important enough to uh, take up the two hours of discussion. So look for that in about 167, out, 167 hours. We will be back with more on Len Springfield and Don Schmidt. Thank you for listening.